when I came across the idea of national service, this idea that everyone should spend at least a year full time in service to their community and their country, it just clicked for me. It was a way to sort of make our democracy real and give everybody a chance to participate as a full time active duty citizen. Learning that sense of teamwork and obligation to each other and doing something bigger than yourself. I'm not sure if if I hadn't done that, that any success I've had in my life, I would have had. Hopefully we can develop a sense of responsibility for each other because at the end of the day, that's the underpinning idea of the social contract. It is a responsibility for others. Welcome back to Breached, a podcast on the American social contract. I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. And I'm Jyoti Jasrasaria. This is our second to last episode, and if you're just joining us, we recommend listening to our promo, Introducing Breached, to get a better sense of our project. There's a story that's told about Benjamin Franklin at the end of the Constitutional Convention in September 1787, as recorded by James McHenry, a delegate from Maryland. According to McHenry, upon leaving Philadelphia's Independence Hall, Dr. Franklin was approached by Elizabeth Powell, a woman who wanted to know what kind of government had been created. She asked, well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? Franklin's reply, a republic, if you can keep it. Today's episode focuses on what it takes to keep it. Over the past four months, we've interviewed people who have different ideas about how we should conceive of American rights and obligations today. And in whatever form a social contract takes, service will be required to maintain and uphold it. Since the founding of this country, Americans have debated what our obligations to serve should be. Thomas Jefferson wrote about his desire to make, quote, every man a soldier, while Alexander Hamilton asserted that, quote, the scheme of disciplining the whole nation must be abandoned as mischievous or impracticable. Instead, he supported the idea of a professional and selective military. By the turn of the 20th century, Americans were beginning to imagine what non-military service on a national level could look like. In 1910, the philosopher William James presented an idea for nationwide civilian service, where American youth would, quote, get the childishness knocked out of them and come back into society with healthier sympathies and soberer ideas, end quote. The self-proclaimed pacifist thought service like working in mines and building roads would be what he called the moral equivalent of war, uniting society without requiring violence. The Great Depression and World War II proved to be turning points for conceptions of civilian and military service in the United States. During the Great Depression, President Roosevelt created the Civilian Conservation Corps and Works Progress Administration, which provided employment opportunities in the form of service projects. These were the first large examples of William James's idea of civilian service in practice. During World War II, the U.S. military was at its largest, with 12 million Americans serving in the military by 1945. Near the end of the war, General George Marshall directed the War Department to produce a pamphlet exploring the merits of universal military training. However, after its production, the pamphlet, titled Shall We Have Universal Military Training, was deemed to be too politically controversial, in at least part because the country was tired of war. 
all printed copies were destroyed. Though universal military training was off the table, the draft continued. During the Vietnam War, more than 1.7 million men were drafted as anti-war sentiment grew. In 1973, President Nixon let the draft expire. In the meantime, opportunities to serve in a civilian context had expanded. President Kennedy introduced the Peace Corps, and President Johnson introduced Volunteers in Service to America, known as VISTA. In the following decades, service, at least in its civilian form, has become a bipartisan idea promoted by Republican and Democratic presidents alike. President George H.W. Bush, in his 1989 inaugural address, committed to supporting organizations that provide Americans opportunities to volunteer. I've spoken of a thousand points of light, of all the community organizations that are spread like stars throughout the nation doing good. We will work hand in hand, encouraging, sometimes leading, sometimes being led, rewarding. We will work on this in the White House, in the cabinet agencies. I will go to the people and the programs that are the brighter points of light, and I'll ask every member of my government to become involved. President Clinton echoed this sentiment in a 1997 speech. Much of the work of America cannot be done by government. Uh, much other work cannot be done by government alone. The solution must be the American people through voluntary service to others. In his first inaugural address, George W. Bush touched on how he conceived of the obligation of American citizenship in relation to service. I ask you to be citizens. Citizens, not spectators. Citizens, not subjects. Responsible citizens building communities of service and a nation of character. And lastly, during the 2008 presidential campaign, then-Senator Obama made national service a key part of his platform. And that's why I won't just ask for your vote as a candidate. I will ask for your service and your active citizenship when I'm President of the United States. This won't be a call issued in one speech or one program. I want this to be a central cause of my presidency. In order to get a sense of how a bipartisan movement to expand service can continue in an age of extreme partisanship and divide, we spoke to three Americans who have each dedicated their lives to service in their own way. Ray Mabus, former Secretary of the Navy and Governor of Mississippi, Alan Casey, co-founder of City Year and longtime leader in the movement for national civilian service, and Stanley McChrystal, retired four-star general and former U.S. commander in Afghanistan. All continue to play a vocal role in considering who is welcome to serve and how they have the opportunity to do so. Ray Mabus's career as Governor of Mississippi, U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and Secretary of the Navy is an example of the profound impact that service can have on one's life. Ray's first foray into public service was as a naval officer in the early 1970s. Being in the, in the U.S. military um, during Vietnam was a very different military from what it is today, and it was also a pretty hard time, uh, a hard time for the country, 
and a hard time for the military. There was a lot of resistance to the Vietnam War. A lot of um, protests were going on um, before and while I was in. And my belief was I, I did not uh, support the Vietnam War, but I thought that everybody had um, an obligation to serve. And I grew up, I mean, I'm a baby boomer, and when I grew up, virtually everybody I knew had a parent who had been in the military during World War II. And it seemed like that that was part of, part of our responsibility to, to do that. Ray credits his time in the military with giving him a larger sense of obligation. The thing that, that I took away from it was I was 21 years old when I went in, and all of a sudden, I had this immense responsibility. Um, I had about 60 people that I was responsible for. I was their mother, their father, their banker, their psychiatrist, their priest, their rabbi. And it taught me that the things I did had a lot of uh, bearing on other people, that the things I did didn't affect just me, that they, and they were not just for now, that they would have effect, you know, the next hour or the next watch or the next day or maybe longer. And that um, if I didn't do my job on a warship, that, you know, some really bad things could happen. And I think that those lessons of learning responsibility, meeting people that I never had met before, or sense, you know, types of people, uh, learning that sense of teamwork and obligation to each other and doing something bigger than yourself. I'm not sure if, if I hadn't done that, that any success I've had in my life uh, I would have had. I think it was one of the real seminal motion, moments of my life. This link between an experience of service and a strong sense of obligation to one's community has long been recognized by Alan Casey, the co-founder of City Year, a program where participants commit a year of their lives to a full-time service project. We spoke to Alan about how he thinks service can shape one's identity as a community member and citizen. I think that for our country to work, we all have to have that, that sense of participation and commitment. Um, so that it, we don't just say it's either up to the government to do everything for us or that the government is in our way. I mean, we, we make up the government at the end of the day. It's up to us. We, we choose the people who get elected. We participate. So I think we need to sort of cut through that with uh, more active citizen engagement. When I came across the idea of national service, this idea that everyone should spend at least a year full time in service to their community, their country, it just clicked for me. It was a way to sort of make our democracy real and give everybody a chance to participate as a full-time active duty citizen. In many ways, despite bipartisan support, service is still not the norm, and active citizenship, as Alan describes it, is not the expectation. We spoke with retired four-star general Stan McChrystal about many people's understanding of citizenship today. 
now it sort of feels like all you have to do is vote, and we not that many Americans actually exercise that, and pay taxes. If you check those two blocks, you say, hey, I'm, I'm doing all that is asked of me. And unfortunately, we have gotten used to not asking anything more of citizens, so they don't feel more engaged than that. They don't feel more responsible than that. And then they expect government, and you know, you could sort of writ large this amorphous idea of governments responsible for taking care of other Americans. Well, we are government. We are other Americans, and we're responsible for taking care of each other in the aggregate and in the individual. The lack of widespread engagement across communities is particularly prominent in the U.S. military. Stan described his experience when serving as U.S. commander in Afghanistan. Inside the military, which is relatively small now, uh, is a group of people who have all volunteered to serve. And that's not bad because they're great people. They come from, you know, families that traditionally with a, a habit of service. But I was struck by the fact that when I would go around when I was senior, I'd go to these little bases in Afghanistan, and they'd be little forts and posts in the middle of nowhere. There'd be maybe 50 Americans and 50 Afghan soldiers serving together. And every time I went to one of those locations, there was the son or daughter of someone that I had known and still knew in the military. In many cases, I knew that now young sergeant or young lieutenant I had known them when they were in school, and they were, might, might have been friends with my son or neighborhood kids. And it was kind of nice because you'd go up and you'd hug them and you'd say, it was great to see you and all that kind of thing. But it was also a bit disturbing because I realized a good percentage of that force, an unhealthy percentage of that force, is the offspring of the generation from them in the force. To Stan, limited participation in the military can lead to problematic outcomes for our country. Our military doesn't represent the swath of across all the zip codes in America or all the, the rungs in the economic ladder and, and whatnot. And that's bothersome to me because I think when a nation goes to war, it must be the nation that goes and the military that goes must be a representation of that society in all the pieces. So as good as the volunteer force was, it wasn't America over there. It was a subset of America that chose to be warriors. And the, the frightening part of that is, one, you don't want to create a military caste, but also you don't want it to be easy for anyone in the political system to make the decision to go to war because it's not going to be their kids. You want to make sure that every zip code's at risk when we make the momentous decision to, uh, to put people in harm's way. Ray echoed this concern and spoke about his efforts as Secretary of the Navy to expand the diversity of military service. The danger in a democracy is that there is too much distance between those doing the protecting, so those in the military, and those being protected. Not enough people know someone in the military today. Uh, the military is tending to become a family business. So if one of your parents was in the military, the odds go way up that you will be too. And it was one of the reasons, although certainly not the only one, but one of the reasons that 
I fought so hard to expand who came into the military. So uh, bringing ROTC back to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Columbia after an absence of more than 40 years at those schools, but also establishing an ROTC unit, uh, Navy ROTC unit at Arizona State and at Rutgers, the two most diverse campuses in the country. We were, and still are, in danger of recruiting too many people that look alike, think alike, act alike. And if you do that, if you don't have enough diversity in a military force, you become predictable. And a predictable military force is a defeatable military force. As Secretary of the Navy, Ray worked to expand who could legally serve in positions of military service by encouraging the elimination of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and welcoming women in positions of combat. But he also mentioned how even symbolic efforts, like the names of naval ships, can expand who we welcome into positions of military service and how different communities see their role in the military. I name ships after Medal of Honor recipients, after Navy Cross recipients, after various naval heroes. But in keeping with Navy tradition, we, the Navy has named our support ships, so supply ships and oilers, after civilians that we, whose values we cherish. And so I named ships the Medgar Evers, the Cesar Chavez, the Harvey Milk, the John Lewis, the Earl Warren, the Robert Kennedy, the Sojourner Truth, the Lucy Stone. Um, because we have to reach out to every part of America and to every community in America um, and to every American, regardless of gender or origin or geography or sexual preference or whatever, because they need to have a stake in those that are serving today. So the danger that I see is that there will that you will get this military class that is distinct from and separated from the people that it protects. And in a democracy that that can be a real danger. While the current makeup of our military perhaps indicates a lack of engagement across the country, each of our guests focused on the need to make civilian service a universal experience for all Americans. Ray spoke about how the Vietnam War influenced his thinking on the topic. I'm a deep believer in national service. Uh, not military service, but national service. I think that the nation and the individuals would benefit a great deal from, from that, from taking a year or a year and a half and doing something for the country. And the only uh, qualification I would have is that everybody should go. And the, the thing that was so corrosive and so divisive in Vietnam was how unfair it was who went and who didn't. They were drafting 30,000 people a month when I finished college. And if you were connected at all, uh, you could probably avoid the draft. Uh, and we drafted people of color. We drafted people from rural areas. We drafted people with, without
about big income much more than we drafted anybody else. And I think if you do something like national service, it has to be uh, that everybody goes, that there are no exceptions, that everybody has something that they can give and everybody has something uh, that they can get from, from something like this. Allen has spent his career working to expand civilian service. In 1988, Allen introduced City Year as a model for national service, along with his co-founder, Michael Brown. You know, we were starting at the end of the 1980s, and Ronald Reagan had been president, and it was clear that nothing was going to come from the federal government. And even the supporters of national service said, we need, you know, how do you know this can work? I mean, my generation was branded the me generation and the yuppie generation, and we didn't really believe that was true. We didn't have a president like Kennedy calling us to service. And so they said, how do you know this could work? Could you really bring together people from different backgrounds? Would anybody be willing to give a year of their lives for a stipend and a post-service award, et cetera. And so that's why we started City Year. And what was different about it was we, we really studied the idea of national service and the theory and thought it was a great idea for a lot of different reasons. So we designed City Year to try to test the theory. The program soon gained national attention, including from then-Governor of Arkansas Bill Clinton, who was running for President of the United States. Then-Governor Clinton visited in December of 1991. He was at a total of 3% in the polls, so he had some time on his hands. And he spent several hours with us and met with mostly young people. That was our focus, was to say, you know, hear from the young people doing this. But we also had the mayor there and Mitt Romney, who was a Republican and uh, was a big business supporter of ours. We wanted to show we were bipartisan. And uh, Hubie Jones, who represented the social justice community. And Clinton had studied the idea of national service. Uh, he understood the theory, but he'd never seen it in action. And that was sort of our theory of change. And, and he took intense notes. He asked great questions. He was extremely engaging. And right there and then, he said, uh, if I become president, I'm going to make this a national program. Bill Clinton became president in 1992, and a year later signed legislation to create AmeriCorps, a program modeled in part on City Year, which provides federal funding for Americans to commit at least a year of their lives to full-time service. However, the program has a limited number of slots available, and universal civilian service is still not a reality. Today, Allen and Stan are working together to change this. In 2016, they started the organization Service Year Alliance, for which Stan serves as chairman. We spoke to Stan about why he decided to become involved. What we haven't done is given young people the opportunity to experience the feeling of service. Now people could say, oh yes we do, we, they can go volunteer where they want or they can join Teach for America or AmeriCorps. The reality is when I, when I found the numbers, it's harder to get into Teach for America statistically than it is to get into Yale, where I teach. Um, it is remarkably difficult. A few years ago, the number was 580,000 young people had applied for positions at AmeriCorps for which there was about 80,000 slots. So in reality, there was this demand for the experience, and we didn't match that with the ability to provide that experience. And for many people, if you, you can't say, well, volunteering, they, all they have to do is go volunteer locally. Well, many people can't do that because they don't have the economic ability for their parents to support them for a year while they go do volunteer work. So 
I, I was struck by the, the fact that we weren't providing the opportunity for young Americans to have the kind of experience that, that grows inside you after the fact. Not everybody's right for the military and not everybody is needed in the military. But the nation needs everybody to be a better citizen. And if we can give experiences that make you a better citizen over time, why wouldn't we do that? Alan described what such a program could look like. I could see a system where, you know, if you do for each year of service, you do even a civilian service program, you earn a year of uh, the equivalent of, of a year's college tuition, fees, et cetera, at a state school. So much like if you join the military, you can basically get college paid for, you know, once you, you do your four years through the GI Bill. I'd love to see something similar on the civilian service side, but I'd also expand it for people who aren't college bound that it, it would be really attached to the American dream. So you could get the equivalent for a down payment for a home, or if you want to be a small business person and start your own business, et cetera. Um, Cause not everybody's going to go to college. In Alan's estimation, a program like this would have two major implications. First, it would educate young Americans about issues that our country faces. I've seen this over and over again. It educates people. So if you spend a year working full-time in a low-income inner-city school or a low-income rural school, you actually get first-hand knowledge about the challenges and the strengths of our public education system. If you spend a year working on issues of poverty or health care or obesity or you name it, you get educated. So right now, our political debates are often either done by politicians who just scream at each other or by so-called experts um, who just point to their study versus the other study. But if you had, you know, I'd love to see everybody, 4 million people a year, hands-on at a time when they're becoming adults working in service, then our political debates would be grounded in, well, I served in a school for a year, and here's what I learned. Second, it could change how we relate to one another in our debates. The tone would change because people would respect each other. I mean, we've seen this in Congress among veterans. You know, when we used to have a critical mass of veterans, I mean, George McGovern and Bob Dole couldn't have been more opposite politically, for example, um, but, but they both served in World War II, and they had that common bond, and they did all the food programs, the, the initial programs around food and food stamps and school breakfast and school lunch, and they, they joined together on that as one example. So I think our, our debates would fundamentally change. As a leader in the movement for expanded public service since the 1980s, Alan has reason to be hopeful. I've been working this a long time, and interestingly, I've had more people talk to me about the idea of national service really since the 2016 election than, you know, in the previous 20 years. And I think it's because our country, well, at least our political leadership is so divided. Our media is so divided. Um, there are so many forces pushing division in our country, and people are hungry for something to unite us, something to bring us together, something where we can roll up our sleeves and actually solve problems. And more and more people are saying to me, well, why don't we have national service? People are even saying it should be mandatory. You know, we need this idea now. 
Ultimately, the idea of universal national service is meant to encourage a sense of community and responsibility for citizens of a country that is deeply divided. Stan explained how this could work by describing a creed that he recited as a young member of the military. Hopefully we can develop a sense of responsibility for each other because at the end of the day, that's the underpinning idea of the social contract. It is a responsibility for others. It is saying that I am going to take this on. I'll, I'll sort of summarize. I, I grew up in a, uh, a military organization called the Rangers, a very elite organization that goes back to Rogers Rangers uh, during the French and Indian War, but then in the modern era is pretty special. And there's a Ranger Creed, and it's a six-stanza creed, and, and it sounds kind of like a long poem, and that every Ranger recites it every day. Everybody's memorized it and they recite it to each other. And there's one line in the creed that says, I'll never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. And you think about that and you say, okay, it's just a mindless mantra that these young people are reciting. And it's not. It's a promise. It says, no matter what happens, I will not leave you. Even if you're, you're down, wounded in a bullet-swept street in Iraq, if you are lost in the mountains of Afghanistan, whatever it is, I'm coming. I'm not going to leave you. And you say, wow, you're promising, and there are about 2,500 rangers. So every ranger is promising 2,500 other people every day that they will do that. They'll put their own life at risk for them without a second thought. And you say, wow, that's, more, that's pretty powerful. In some ways, that's more powerful than a marriage vow. And a bit frightening to to make that commitment. But then you realize there are 2,500 other people making that same promise to you every day. And that's pretty reassuring. And so the idea that we make promises to each other, to me, is the sinew that can bind a society together. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what it takes to maintain a social contract and the role that service should play in the lives of Americans. If you visit breachedpodcast.org, you can find more information on our guests and the topics we discussed. The series' last episode on democracy will be released on June 20th. Thanks to our producer, Mareva Lindo, and to Annie Swanson-Nystrom for our artwork. The music you hear on this podcast is Lullaby for Democracy and Go Tell It on the Molehill by Dr. Turtle. Please follow us on Twitter at Breached Podcast and subscribe to Breach on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love for you to send us your questions, responses, and ideas via email at breachedpodcast at gmail.com or via message at 617-528-0708. And if you haven't already, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. And I'm Jyoti Dasrasaria. And this is Breached. <laughs>